So Adrian, I heard you're going to be at ASHA this year. Yes, that's right. I'm very excited. Um, okay, so I'm going to be at ASHA in Boston in the exhibit hall. Technically, the exhibit hall is open November 15th through 18th, but we'll be there every day. So I'm going to be there with my company Say Hello Speech. I am promoting my new app. Ooh, spoiler alert. We haven't even announced it yet. <laughs> so I'll be there and I'm so happy to chat about the podcast. Please stop by and say hi if you happen to be there. It would be nice to just like see a friendly face or like a friendly listener face that we've never seen, but we want to chat with you. So come on by and say hi. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm so bummed that I am going to miss it this year. Cannot make it to Boston. Travesty. Fingers crossed. Next year's Seattle, right? Uh, yes. Right. At least on our coast. Yeah. I will be in Seattle. <laughs> um, oh, I also wanted to say I'm going to be in the member entrepreneur, entrepreneur, say that word, entrepreneur area. <laughs> so come on by and I'll be over there. Great. You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Laura Geyser and Adrian Frost. This month, we're reading Uniquely Human by Dr. Barry Prezant. Let's get into it. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Laura. Welcome back to the SLP Book Club podcast. Today, we're discussing Uniquely Human by Dr. Barry Prezant. We're going to do chapters two and three. But first today, we're going to do would you rather questions, some of my favorites. Yeah. <laughs> for some reason, they might get a little, a little spicier. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> they might be a little weird today. Adrian, do you want to start? Okay, yeah, I'll start. Would you rather get a face tattoo of something of your choosing or a tattoo in a discreet area chosen by someone else? Okay. As someone who does not have a single tattoo. I'm a tattooless person. I mean, how discreet are we talking? Maybe on your tush, like something you can always cover up with like bikini bottom. Okay, something that would always be covered. Right. Then I'll get the one that someone else chooses in the discreet area. I mean, I just and you listen, I'm not against a face tattoo. There is a member of my family that has face tattoos. Sure. Fine. Do it. But that is for a certain type of look you're going for, you know? Yeah. And it's not necessarily my set. It's not your... <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, they're becoming more accepted, but I just don't think when I show up to assess a three-year-old in their home that they want like face tattoo, girl. Yeah. Wait, oh, yeah, wait. You but have to think about but there are freckle tattoos now. That's the thing now. I know. I was going to try to find a loophole. Like maybe I'll do the freckles or maybe I'll do like, I think maybe like a little tiny star. Like my sister just got this. She came home yesterday with this like stamp and it's like a, it's like a little face stamp and it like puts stars, like a little star oh, okay. and it was really cute. Okay. But so maybe like a little, you know, star tattoo. Or something. Yeah. One that looks like one of those piercings. Right. Exactly. That's like a beauty mark. Mm -hmm. Is that what you'd go with? Yeah. Or would you let someone choose? You know, I'll just be, I'll be wild. I guess I would just do a little face tattoo, just something a little small. Like, could it be near my ear? Could it be somewhere that my hair covers a lot? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Or does it have to always be visible? No, I mean, 
you're primarily a teletherapist. And I feel like if you had a small, like a little tiny star under your eye, I wouldn't even really be able to see that. I would just think it was some type of beauty mark. Yeah. I mean, that's true. It's not like the resolution's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Who is that singer, the guy who has the face tattoos? Post Malone. Post Malone. Do you feel like he has done a lot to like normalize face tattoos because he's so popular? Yeah. I mean, I would say a real trailblazer in the area is Mike Tyson. Sure. But yes, Post Malone, because he's that really typical, what you see is not what you get. You're going to look at me and think I'm like kind of hard, hardened, but I'm actually this super sweet little teddy bear. Like, yeah, I have my demons, but I'm actually, I used to have this preschooler She turned five in the middle of the year. It was during COVID. So we were all like on Zoom and she had a Post Malone birthday party. She had all these balloons behind her. They were all Post Malone balloons. All the bags and stuff were like sunflowers with his face in the middle. She had like a Post Malone plushie or like, I forget. She had like everything Post Malone. (laughs) I was like, this tiny girl is like obsessed with Post Malone. So yeah, I mean, certainly... He's a he's a real household name. He's accepted by people wow. young and old. I mean, sure. You know, Laura, I really like how you tied in obsession since we're going to be talking about enthusiasms. <laughs> Excuse me, enthusiasms. We're going to be talking about enthusiasms today. <laughs> yeah, she had a real enthusiasm for Post Malone. Love that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this one is not very spicy. This is, would you rather have a driver to take you everywhere or a private chef who makes all your meals? Private chef, for sure. For sure. No brainer. Of course. Of course. <laughs> driving is not Yeah, I'm like driving is not that hard. I get where I want to go, you know? There are times where it might be nice, like LAX. Yeah. But get an Uber, you know? Definitely a chef. Wow, it'd be fabulous. Not having to think about it's not just the making of the meals, it's the planning, it's the grocery shopping. Like I would want the private chef to also just be like taking care of all of that. Oh yeah. A quarter of my entire brain space would just be like freed up for other stuff if I wasn't constantly thinking about what to eat, when to get the stuff, when to grocery shop. It's so much. I know. And you know, I've been on a real below deck kick lately. Me too. <laughs> Have you been watching the new season of Down Under? Oh, I already. Yeah, I watched the whole thing. It was so good. The drama. But remember how great the chef was, Zarina? Yes, Zarina. She was like amazing. Everyone loved her food. She made it. She was like really smart about it where she was like, okay, I'm going to make only kind of like straightforward, sort of like healthy stuff, but not try to be too crazy with it. And it was like the timing was always right. Everyone loved it. But then I started watching a season of regular Below Deck uh-huh. and they had Chef Rachel, which if you know about Chef Rachel, she's real wild card. Oh, But you know, this season I'm watching with her, she's really struggling and it's like she's trying to be too much, trying to be too fancy. It's like she's like doing all these tasting menus that take like three hours. I don't know. You know, not all chefs are made the same. Sometimes I don't know when I'm watching Below. Sorry for anybody listening who does not watch Below Deck, but I don't know which I like better. As a former waitress, the stress of the meal service on Below Deck really stressed. And I'm sure everybody gets stressed out with it. Like when it's taking too long and the guests are sitting going like, I'm so hungry and the food's not coming out or they don't like it and it keeps getting sent back. That just makes me crazy. Also, like the way the chef reacts and how mean they get. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's like you have to 
communicate directly with them and sometimes they're so grumpy they it's like i feel like being a chef is so crazy you have to have this crazy personality or like yeah be like an extreme person or something I don't yeah know. but then you get seasons like with serena where they're so good and everyone just loves everything they make mm. and you're like wait this is kind of boring I kind of need the excitement. I need the crazy chef that's just like all over the place, throwing things, you know? Yeah. Okay. Would you rather only be able to communicate via emojis or only be able to communicate via slang words? Emojis. Emojis. I mean, I can't keep on top of slang. I feel like my vocabulary would be incredibly limited. I just would not... Slay, slay. That's all these kids are saying. <laughs> like slay queen, yes. Honestly, right now nothing is coming. My my mind is a blank when I even try to think of anything slang. <laughs> I wish I still worked at a high school. I would be so much cooler. I would be really up to date on all the slang, all the artists. I don't know anything. I just feel old all the time. It's fine. Yeah, I mean, what can you do? This is life. I do watch TikTok and I feel like that keeps me young a little bit. Yeah. A tiny bit. Of course. Of course. <laughs> so wait, which one would you rather do? You know, I feel like it wouldn't it be a fun challenge to do emojis. Immediately I started thinking like, how could I communicate what I want? Like I'm on the way. You do like the little person and maybe like a car and then the little cloud. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like the little fart cloud. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and did you know, sometimes I see TikToks that talk about how which emojis you use can actually date you, make you look old. Oh. So like the kids are using like different emojis for like different things. Like if someone's a joke, you know, they'll do like a clown. Mm -hmm. And it's like, he's such a clown. Like, okay. Yeah. So maybe we should brush up on it we, so we can appear very hip and cool. I read an article about how if you still use a crying laughing emoji, you're showing that you're like middle aged. And if you always use a skull, to show that you're dying or dead. Right, dead. You're hip dead. or you're young. <laughs> I do a lot of crying. I still do ha ha ha. I still do LOL. I still do crying laughing emoji. I don't care. Me too. Let me live my life. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you though, my fiance and I do not communicate using emojis at all. He's like the only person. Oh. I do not use emojis with him. Maybe every once in a Is while. Is it unspoken? Is it like an unspoken rule or have you had a conversation where he's like, no. I hate emojis? And no, you're like, yeah, it's, yeah, it's just like unspoken. It's like, I don't want to show him my emo the emoji side of myself. <laughs> oh, it's vulnerable. That's <laughs> Sometimes I'll send just like single emojis, like after I say something that are very literal, like, Oh, yeah. It's kind of weird. No, it's fun. I like that. <laughs> All right. That's it for Would You Rather. Stick around after a quick break. We'll get back to discuss chapters two and three of Uniquely Human. Have you checked out Laura's speech materials yet on Teachers Pay Teachers or Boom Learning under Laura G. SLP? I am such a huge fan and I'm here to sing her praises. <laughs> Since I'm a teletherapist, I use Boom cards almost exclusively during my sessions. As with all things in speech, sometimes the most unexpected materials are a hit with the kiddos. My students love Laura's What Did You Find activities that feature a fun flashlight to look for different items, and her lid comb handouts for parents on TPT are also amazing, and I love to use them with private clients. She also has some great game type reinforcers like the picture reveal activities and a Connect Four donut game that I've been playing on repeat with one student for months. <laughs> 
The best part is that I can use almost all of her materials with a range of kids who have different levels of needs. This helps you get the most bang for your buck. Her materials are well thought out, evidence-based, and fun and engaging for the kids. We can't all be creative geniuses, so we might as well support and benefit from those who are. Thanks for sharing your genius with us, Laura. Go check them out today at Laura G SLP on Boom Learning and TPT. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast, it's a community. Go to our Instagram at SLP underscore book club to join the discussion and connect with us after each episode. Want even more of the SLP Book Club? The resources we make to support the content of the books we read are available for free on our Patreon or at the Laura G. SLP Teachers Pay Teachers store. You can find links to them in the show notes. To learn more about the SLP Book Club, go to the slpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at the slpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at slp underscore book club or on TikTok at the SLP Book Club. Okay, so let's get into it. Chapter two is called Listen. And this is really a chapter about, I would say, echolalia and just really trying to figure out what a child is communicating and, you know, how sort of being a little bit of a detective is sometimes necessary so that you can figure out what something means because we want to value any attempts that kids make to communicate with us. Okay, I'm kind of going back and forth. I kind of just want to call him Barry. I kind of want to call him Dr. Barry. I know. For this episode, listen, listeners, I'm going to call him Dr. Barry because I know that's what his kids call him. I know that's what people that work with him call him. So I'm just going with it. Okay. Yep. Love your life. (laughs) All right. He starts with the story of a kid, David, who he says really taught him to listen. So David's speech was mostly echolalic, both immediate and delayed. And Dr. Barry was working with him one day and David became really fascinated with his sweater, started pulling on the little balls that would pill and examining them between his fingers. And Dr. Barry decided to just follow his lead because he really liked textures and textiles. So he said, that's a ball of fuzz. And then David started repeating that, especially the word fuzz. He would say it over and over. And Dr. Barry just knew that this was a way to get even more attention and engagement from David. But then the same thing happened after an art project when David found bits of cut up sponge on the floor and he was holding them up and rubbing them between his fingers. And Dr. Barry goes, oh, that's a bit of sponge. And then David starts repeating that and dancing around and, you know, looking at the sponge in his fingers. And then the next day, even though everything had been cleaned up, David goes right back to that spot where he found the sponge and he starts dancing around saying, that's a bit of sponge. (laughs) And Dr. Barry's point of telling this whole story is that if someone who didn't know the context, they came in and witnessed David dancing around and talking about a sponge when there's no sponge in sight. They wouldn't know what was going on. But because Dr. Barry was there with him the day before, he knew that David was communicating his feelings of excitement about finding that sponge and essentially was telling him a story. So echolalia is a defining characteristic of autism. Instead of initiating or communicating With his own language, a child might borrow a word or phrase he's heard from others, and utterances the child hears at moments of joy, fear, anxiety, or excitement can take on a life of their own, and the child seems to relive the experience when they echo the words later. So he tells another story of a fifth grade girl with autism who he visited, and as soon as he came in, 
She started saying, got a splinter. And she was looking at him like out of the corner of her eye. And the teacher was able to calm her down by telling her that Dr. Barry was a nice man. And then the teacher explained to him later that she had gotten a really painful splinter two years earlier and now would say that anytime she felt anxious. So it was like a signal to her teachers that she was feeling anxiety. And many parents and practitioners understand exactly what a child is communicating when they use echolalia. So it's frustrating when it's described by some as just an autistic behavior and that it gets in the way of a child appearing normal. And then I wrote, oh my gosh, his description of how people have tried to stop echolalia is alarming. I mean, maybe we're just like living in a new time. And to read this was like, Oh my gosh. I know. It has been called silly talk or video talk. I was surprised. This was rough reading it. Harsh methods have been used to try to eliminate it, like lapping in the child's face or squirting lemon juice in their mouths. I was horrified. I was horrified. Oh my gosh. Or people use just planned ignoring where... The child's using echolalia, so they just don't respond, or they hold up a finger and say, be quiet, or no talking. And these professionals are misunderstanding echolalia because they're ignoring legitimate attempts at communication, and they're disrupting the child's process of learning to communicate and connect with the world. So early in his career, Dr. Barry worked at the Buffalo Children's Hospital Autism Program, and this was in the 70s, and he says it was a great program, and he supported a classroom of five boys with autism, and he was conducting a study on echolalia. He really wanted to understand its purpose because many of the people who were making judgments about children with autism were behavior therapists and not experts in speech and language. And behavior therapists have a goal of eliminating or reducing undesirable behaviors, and echolalia is often seen as one. Dr. Barry started observing them in school and at home to see the purpose of their echolalia. So, for example, when teachers told this boy David no, he would dance around the classroom repeating, we don't slam doors, we don't pee on the walls, to indicate I understand. I'm doing something that we don't do in the class. And another student, Jeff, he tells this story of him. He seemed really lethargic one day and started going around to everybody and saying, do and opening his mouth really wide. And then they couldn't figure it out. So they call his mom and she's like, oh, I think he's getting sick. And when he starts to get sick, I look in his mouth and I tell him, do ah. So Jeff was trying to communicate to them that he didn't feel good. And he was trying all day. With all the videotaped recordings he got, Barry analyzed the echoes and categorized them, and he saw that there was immediate echolalia and delayed echolalia or scripting, and that these kids communicated using echolalia in all different ways, affirming what they understood, taking turns, rehearsing what they would say later, repeating sounds that helped to calm them, talking through the steps of a process, or reassuring themselves. So many typically developing children acquire language one word at a time, gradually increasing language in length and complexity, but autistic children often pick up whole chunks at a time. And he doesn't mention gestalt language processing, but that's what he's describing, right? right? I used to say, think of it as like gestalt. Yeah. I don't know. But I heard Tara. I thought it was gestalt. Saying. It's a hard G. No, Tara was like gestalt. And I was like, I got to look up how to say this. And I looked it up. And sure enough, very German. So he describes a little four-year-old named Aiden who would greet everyone with, are you a good witch or a bad witch from the Wizard of Oz? Which, you know, was his way of greeting and 
learning whether he could trust somebody. <laughs> so it had a lot of meaning. I thought that was really cute. Yeah. Really sweet. And then he also tells a story that was really interesting to me. He went sailing with a boy and his dad. And when they got to the dock, the boy was running up and down excitedly saying, no dogs, dogs bite. And his dad explained to Dr. Barry that he was asking if he could go swimming because he had a fear of dogs. So when he was anxious about his safety, he would repeat, no dogs, dogs bite. Since he wanted to swim but wasn't sure if it was a safe area, he was asking his dad. And when his dad said, it's okay, it's safe, no dogs, the boy jumped right in. So every family has its own language and way of communicating or understanding each other. And often an outsider is not going to understand. So parents are a great source of information about echolalia because they usually know exactly what it means. And they'll be able to say something like, oh, he says that when he's anxious or he says that when he doesn't understand how to do something. I did want to share. I thought that was so like this part of the book really was touching me because it was just another example of like parents really are the best experts on their child. Yeah, They spend so much time with the child outside of the limited time we spend with them. Even a teacher who spends the majority of the day, parents are with them before and after school on the weekends. And they are really the ones who can give a lot of important information. So I like that Dr. Barry continues to emphasize, like, talk to the parents, make sure this is a team effort, kind of going back to Dr. Delahook and her book, Beyond Behaviors, which I think is just so relevant the whole time I'm reading this, you know, thinking of it as a puzzle and everybody brings a piece to the table and parents have so much history on the child, they know exactly why they're saying something or where it came from. And it can be really helpful. So I was glad that he emphasized this. Yeah. And You know, I can think back on times where in IEPs, something like that would come up where we'd say something that was going on and the parent would have this insight, you know, like telling us, oh, yeah, actually, that's because of this thing at home, you know? Yeah. And you're like, why haven't I talked to the parent about this earlier? Why hasn't somebody asked? Right. Like this would have solved so many issues. (laughs) Yeah. Echolalia is a path to acquiring language. Over time, a child will learn the rules of language using echolalia and will break down the memorized chunks of speech. The echolalia will gradually lessen as the child develops a creative language system, but this happens at different rates for each child. And we can help by simplifying our own language, breaking down echolalic chunks into words and smaller phrases, using gestures, and introducing visual supports and written language. So he describes the difference between a dad saying to his daughter, please go over to the refrigerator and get some milk and cookies versus saying, go to the refrigerator and pointing to the refrigerator, waiting for that, then saying, get milk, then saying, open the cabinet, then get cookies. You know, you're giving them so much more information. I got to take courses on gestalt language processing. Yeah, I, I think it really had its moment. Like I was seeing so much about it on social media. And I think there's definitely something there for especially echolalia, which can be so hard to know how to treat. I supervise a slippa and, you know, she was coming to me like, I just have all these kids who are like, you know, three and four years old and they're just repeating everything. And she's like, I don't really know what to do to treat it. And I think from my research, some of the best things are really to keep questions short and try to give options and say things in a way where if the child repeats it back to you, then they're making a choice, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's ways to phrase it, to phrase your questions that can kind of be helpful. But 
I think there's a lot to gestalts and I would love to learn more too. I wish we had learned about it when we were in grad school. Yeah. But perhaps that was before it was popular. When was this book? Because I remember when this book became really popular. Okay, 2015. And like he doesn't even mention it. So this is really something that had this like, right. you know, it's just in the last few years, right? If you're on Instagram, you see it all the time. So continuing education, people. That's why we do it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Introduce photographs, pictures, or written words instead of just using spoken language because some kids will communicate better if they have pictures or they write or they type what they want to say. And some kids will revert to echolalia when they feel stressed or anxious, even if they've sort of outgrown it. So he describes a high school student who attended mainstream classes and would stand up and suddenly sing The Circle of Life, first in English, then in German. And the teachers wanted to honor his creative spirit, but the singing in the middle of class was really disruptive. So Barry asked him why he did it. And he said it was when the teacher was talking too fast and he couldn't keep up or comprehend what the teacher was saying. So he sang to calm himself down and feel better, which I don't really consider that echolalia. Like he's using a, a calming strategy, like an adaptive strategy. Yeah. Everything's communication. So he is communicating to his teacher. I'm confused. I'm anxious. Right. But it's not really echolalia, right? It's, uh, uh, yeah, I don't really think so. Um, I get what he's saying, which is probably like it's delayed echolalia. But yeah, I think of more traditional like repeating a sentence from a TV show or yeah. parts of commercials or jingles. But yeah, I mean, I would have liked to have been a fly on that wall <laughs> and just to see that performance. Sounds amazing. I know. I know. <laughs> but you know, this just it reminded me of Beyond Behaviors. This is the way the kid had found to regulate himself emotionally and the solution that they found was to bring a sketch pad to class because he also right. liked drawing the characters from the lion king so he could just draw and then eventually they used a whiteboard and when he would feel that anxiety he could just draw the characters echolalia is often the first time a child sees that they can use their body as an instrument and produce speech that expresses their wants needs observations and feelings it helps them to connect with other people so it's really important that we listen and we try to understand and not be dismissive of this way of communicating because a child is desperately trying to communicate and if an attempt is met with people telling him to be quiet it can be harmful to his development of speech and language when we shut down their attempts they may start avoiding certain people and give up so he says simply just listen observe and ask why he also gives an interesting perspective on why children with autism like animated movies and characters so much. He says that the predictability and consistency of characters is really comforting. In real life, people are unpredictable. And that vocal, facial, and body language is exaggerated, making it easier to understand emotions. And there's a clear delineation of good and evil characters instead of the really nuanced gray areas that we experience in real life. And that took me back to... Um, the Loving Push, which we read in February, which they talked a lot about using kids with autism have such a strong sense of right and wrong and morals. And you can use that to explain things to them right. in the world. And they will like get it because they have such a strong moral compass. Yeah, there's yeah. so like there's things that are right and things that are yes. wrong. Black Not everybody. Everybody's different, but 
they did mention that. And then he tells the story of Namir, who loved Peter Pan, and his parents really embraced it, joined in, got action figures, and acted out scenes with him. And he gradually progressed and began developing creative language, but he would sometimes still use his learned snippets from Peter Pan, like whenever he wanted someone to leave, he would say, Tinkerbell, I hereby banish you forever, which I love. <laughs> it's just like, are you a good yes. witch or a bad witch? It's really cute. It's better than saying go away. <laughs> And the meaning is clear. Yes. <laughs> he eventually transformed from a boy who seemed lost in his own world of Peter Pan to an interactive and social elementary school student. Nice. Go Namir. So that was chapter two called Listen. Chapter three is called Enthusiasms, which we already mentioned in our little conversation before. So Dr. Barry starts with the story of Clara Claiborne Park. She's the mother of an autistic woman named Jessie. Dr. Barry had the mother speak at an annual autism fundraiser that he was holding. And at the end of the talk, someone asked her, I'm curious about your daughter's obsessions. How have you dealt with them? And she replied, obsessions. Hmm. We've always thought of them as enthusiasms. So I think Barry adopted that and was like, this is what I'm calling them. <laughs> so anything that her daughter was enthusiastic about, they would try to steer her in a direction that would help her. And she was a really talented artist. She is a very talented artist who's had a lot of her work shown in galleries, and she would often incorporate her enthusiasms into her work. Children with autism often develop lots of enthusiasms, and Dr. Barry says maybe focusing on one thing in depth gives them a sense of control and predictability. But some people see enthusiasms as an undesirable characteristic of autism that makes their child stand out even more, so they discourage them. If you do that, you might be discouraging something that is essentially an adaptive strategy that helps your child emotionally regulate, or you might be discouraging interest in something that just brings that child joy. So it would be better to encourage the enthusiasm and find ways for it to enrich the child's life. So he tells the story of a fourth grader, Eddie, who was not interested in reading or writing at school, but he had a really great special education teacher who noticed that he loved examining the license plates on the cars in the staff parking lot and matching them to the cars. And Barry encouraged her to keep paying attention to that interest and see if there was a creative way to use it to engage Eddie academically. So they created a project for him where he would take photographs of the cars and the license plates and then figure out who each car belonged to and go and interview them, asking them about their life and their children, everything. It was really sweet. Oh. And then he compiled everything into a PowerPoint presentation and presented it to his class, answering their questions. And he was just really engaged, got lots of practice with research and reading and writing, compiling information and social skills, of course. And his parents couldn't believe it when they talked about the project at his next IEP. And the teacher showed pictures of Eddie doing his presentation. And it sounded like his dad was just completely blown away. And he does note that some parents wouldn't approve of doing something that's not really traditionally academic. Yeah. And some schools wouldn't like going off the curriculum, but this happened to be a situation where everyone was really supportive because they saw how engaged Eddie was and what a difference that made. You know, I have to say, I was kind of surprised that the dad didn't know about the project until the IEP. Did you feel like that? <laughs> I was like, that sounds like a big deal. Like he's not coming home and talking about it or, you know, the parents not double checking or, you know, the teacher's not double checking with the parents. Like, are you okay with this? Yeah. It was probably a powerful moment to see the dad like, what? He's been doing what? Like, that was probably amazing. But at the same time, I'm like, that is an interesting note that didn't hmm. cross my mind. But I have to tell you one quick, I'm going to make this quick. I used to work, I worked at a high school with a student before I became an SLP. And that student was 
trialing an AAC device, but had cerebral palsy. And I was essentially the translator because her speech was difficult for new people Mm. to understand. So if she did a presentation in class, she would talk and then I would repeat what she said for the Mm -hmm. class and then she would talk, you know, but she was getting an AAC device. And I went to the teacher and I said, she had a big presentation coming up and I said, Hey, I think it'd be really cool if she put together the whole presentation and did it all on her own on her AAC device. And this teacher said, "Mm, I really want it to be like they're presenting, you know, live off the cuff that seems like cheating like she would be preparing everything she said ahead of time what? <laughs> and I wasn't an SLP yet right, you know I hadn't right. gone back to school and so I just was like okay like it's hard to advocate <laughs> but, when you don't even know what to say really yeah and you know like some teachers just are so this is the assignment yes this is the way you're gonna do it I don't really have any flexibility when it comes to different students individual differences it was so bizarre and I think about it all the time I'm like what it's just really misguided (laughs) and it was a young teacher it wasn't like somebody old school you know it's crazy I have to say like that's how it was at a middle school that I used to work at is this school took itself really seriously for being academically rigorous yeah and I feel like the teachers had so little It's like, I want to say empathy for these kids who are really struggling and who were not able to like keep up with the classwork. And they acted like modifying assignments or extending due dates was like so unfair to the other kids. Or I have had teachers who like didn't want kids to wear headphones in class, even though it was part of their IEP accommodations, because there's no headphones allowed in my class. I don't know. It was so frustrating to have to argue with these people because it just felt like, don't you want to help all kids succeed? And if you did, then you would understand, like, if you've been a teacher for any number of years, you can obviously see that kids learn in different ways. Yeah. You know, it's just, it was so upsetting to me. Frustrating. Yeah. I mean, I'm almost, after reading Beyond Behaviors and now reading this, you get to this point where you look back on some of the kids, you know, kids with autism, you don't want to put a ceiling on how much they can learn, but you, you do go, what were we doing trying to pressure them so much when a kid was obviously struggling and we're trying to force them to do something when they're just so dysregulated i don't know it's like yeah we need to push them to learn these things it's so important that they learn all these things but where do you just go hey today just being emotionally regulated is the goal and i don't know i know it's hard it's hard to say i totally get it So why do people with autism have enthusiasms? Most people have things they're passionate about. Even if you don't have autism, you'll have a hobby or something you collect, like Dr. Barry collects (laughs) ivory walrus tusks that he assures us are acquired ethically. I still felt a little (laughs) bit uncomfortable about it. (laughs) (laughs) And he describes other various things he's collected and how they don't make him strange. It's easy to understand somebody having a collection like that. And these things fill a need and make us feel good for reasons we might not even be able to understand. But why do people with autism seem so much more prone to have very passionate enthusiasms? Humans have a biological need for connection, and it may be that since people with autism have difficulty connecting socially sometimes, they channel that need for connection into their interests and into objects even. So some kids with autism have a passion for music and perfect pitch. 
And he says as many as 15% of people with autism have these types of savant skills, but not most. Yeah. Probably people that are uneducated about autism picture Rain Man. Did you ever have any students that had any skills like that? Oh, yes. I've had students with perfect pitch. Mm -hmm. And I've had students that they'll have like a delayed echolalia with me. That is something I've said in the past. And I can recognize that they're saying it in the exact pitch that I did. Mm. You're like, oh, my God, is that me? And I had a guy, not somebody I worked with, but there was a guy at my high school who could remember the weather on every single day, like in history, in our city. Wow. I had, maybe it would be considered more of a splinter skill, but kids who were like higher functioning on the spectrum, one kid in particular, I didn't test him, but my coworker did. And she was giving, you know, some standardized assessment where it was like, tell me one, two, three, or four, maybe something like, I don't know, the PPVT, you know, where they have to say like, which one. Yeah. And instead of giving her a number, like the answer is two, he would give her an equation. And then the answer to the equation was his number that he was selecting. And he was just like rattling them off. And she was like, this is amazing. And I was like, yeah, it's amazing. But like, don't make me do math. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an SLP. Don't you know I can't do math? <laughs> exactly. But I mean, it's it's very cool. I love I love some of the examples he shares too. But I was just curious if you had experienced anything like that. Yeah, just just in bits and pieces. I mean, kind of like what he said. It's really fifteen percent, so we don't see that all the time. But you certainly see. I mean, the creativity to the artistic skills of some of my kids I've worked with that had autism. It's just it blows you away. It's amazing. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Once a child becomes aware of a preference like this, they might seek it out to recreate the feeling, even becoming completely preoccupied with it. He tells a story of a boy who loved car washes. This is maybe my favorite. He loved car washes so much and his parents would take him every opportunity they could to go through a car wash and they knew him at his local car wash and they wrote to the International Car Wash Association to get brochures that they thought he would like, but that led to him being invited to their annual convention. I think it was in Las Vegas, which was like a three-day thing and his absolute dream, his dream vacation. Amazing. <laughs> when she said it was a dream vacation for his family, I was like, was it for the whole family? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe just to see him like so overjoyed. Yeah, it, but. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then another boy, Chad, who this is okay, wait, this is my favorite, who loved sprinkler heads, would search any outdoor area to find the sprinkler heads, pull them up, inspect them. He knew the difference between the different brands. If he drew a picture of an outdoor scene, he would always include like a sprinkler sticking up and spraying water. And Aww. his parents would purchase him secondhand sprinkler heads online and he would carry them around like stuffed animals they would draw little faces on it is really sweet <laughs> i love it of him sleeping with one the way she talked about him sleeping with it <laughs> <laughs> these interests can help children stay engaged especially when learning is hard for them so you know he describes a few stories but one is a boy who loved auric vacuum cleaners and would become really overwhelmed in class, go to the restroom and then refuse to come out. So his mom got him an auric catalog and cut out pictures of the vacuum cleaners and then created a book of them that she called Vinny's Happy Book. Really sweet. And then when he became overwhelmed in class, he would ask for the book and sit on a beanbag looking at it. He describes some other ones, a kid who loved time and clocks, a kid who loved cooking spices. I mean, he has so many examples in each of these chapters. We can't get into all of them, but they do just make you really think and makes you think like, how could I use that interest to get a kid engaged in learning or an activity? 
We can connect with children using their enthusiasms. They give children a safe place to start a conversation and even obscure sounding questions about their interests might be their attempt to connect with us. And they can be a hook that gets them into a conversation or activity. And then you can gradually expand it depending on the child's flexibility and level of social emotional development. He tells a story of a kindergartner who was enrolled in general education and the teacher, after his mom suggested using Winnie the Pooh stickers to get him more involved in their morning meeting, she did. She put a character on each day and like Monday would be, I forgot, like Winnie the Pooh day and then Tuesday would be Eeyore day, you know, and the other kids got involved and it made it interesting to this kid and it was a way for him to not only be engaged and learn, but then connect socially with his classmates. So families can acknowledge and honor their child's enthusiasms and integrate them into family routines. And Hakim was a student at an international school in Kuwait, and he loved trains. And his family would let him plan their European vacation every year. And once they got the general shape of where they were going to go, Hakim was in charge of figuring out all the transportation they would take, where they would stay, for how long. And they had these really fun scrapbooks for each vacation and for each city they would start the scrapbook page with the train schedule for that city. And the family was just embracing his enthusiasm, helping him find a way to connect with them and with the world around him. And he had this incredible knowledge of European cities and landmarks. And I do have to say, I I had a kid who loved trains. Me too. Like a kind of older elementary, but his mom would spend like a whole Saturday. She would let him go in LA. Like we do have public transit in LA. We're not known for it, but (laughs) they could go out to Santa Monica on the train. Like she would just anywhere, she'd let him plan it and spend a whole day. I had a student who was obsessed with washers and dryers oh yeah it was a unique enthusiasm I'd never heard that before and (laughs) he you know like the minute I sit down with him the first time I'm meeting him he was like what kind of washer and dryer do you have yeah and I was like I don't know (laughs) he's like is it a Samsung I'm like I think and he's like telling me about his washer and dryer and then I'm like all I know is it sings like a really long song When the washer cycle is done, the song goes on and on and on. You think it's done. It's not. It's literally like 10 seconds long. And I kind of told him that. I was like, yeah, you know, the song is long. And he's like, oh, does it go like this? And then he started singing it to me. And I was like, yeah, it does. But it was just looking back, like his mom had just expressed that she was really like over it. She was over the conversations She felt like it was so socially alienating for him. But I wish I'd read this book because I would have treated it differently and given her different advice. I think they're supportive about it. I remember him talking about for his birthday, they made him like maybe replica washer and dryers out of like cardboard boxes. Uh And it was just really sweet. But looking back, it's like I would have treated it a little differently, maybe. Especially if you're... I understand the feeling that you don't want your child to be alienating themselves and the things they say maybe aren't interesting to peers. Is it the next? No, it may be this chapter when he talks about, you know, going over with them, the right time to be talking about that, who to talk to about it and and all that. But just feels like a washer and dryer enthusiasm could really be shaped. I mean, you know, since I've lived in this house, I've had a man out to help me with my washer and it's a good job. You could own a company that services washer and dryers because you are the person like everyone would go to you because you're the person that knows everything about them because you love them. Right. What an opportunity 
you know, if that's what makes a person happy, right. then shape that into whatever. Maybe he'll be an engineer and he'll be working to develop them. I mean, he could work for you Samsung. He could work for LG. Yeah. <laughs> There's just so much That's opportunity. Really and I just think anything someone's enthusiastic about, maybe not touching ankles, we'll get to that. But yeah, sometimes enthusiasms are focused on people. And sometimes kids with autism become fascinated with certain famous people or characters, or sometimes with people in their class, and they don't necessarily understand the boundaries or social conventions. So it's a good opportunity to teach about friendships and social boundaries. Like Tyler, a kindergartner with Asperger's, who became focused on the principal. So for this story, since we just read Beyond Behaviors, it did make me cringe a little bit. I'll tell you why. He was really fascinated with Mrs. Anderson, the principal, and she took a special interest in him and invited him to her office. And then she made a deal with him right. that if he could make... I know the exact part you're going to talk about. <laughs> if he could make good choices for a month... A controlling whole himself month yeah. he could join her as principal for a day and it does sound to me like they gave him appropriate coping strategies like asking for help or a break when he needed it and his teacher worked closely with him to go over how he did it every day and yeah he did succeed i just think it's really unrealistic and setting a child up for failure when you ask a five-year-old to try to earn a reward they really want after a whole month of good behavior mm -hmm. when they're having trouble with that. And when a lot of his behaviors are probably adaptations to being overwhelmed or anxious or stressed, you know, you don't know why he's behaving a certain way. Putting a Band-Aid on it and using something that's really motivating for him to probably push himself to a place where he's not feeling regulated, but he can't. Yeah. Even, you know, because he wants it so and bad. And what if he, what if he hadn't succeeded? What if it had just been too I hard know. to do it? You know? I know. I don't know. But I the know. story ends cutely. <laughs> he earns a special day. He dresses in a suit and tie and he sits in a little desk in the corner of her office and they documented the whole thing in a photo album. So it's all wrapped up with a nice bow. But, you know, we know that that's not really an appropriate way to work on behavior. <laughs> right. Now we know. You know, now we know. So. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes enthusiasms cause trouble, like Gabriel, a teenager who was over six feet tall and loved women's ankles and would squat down in public to try to touch strangers' ankles. People who knew him knew he would never do anything harmful, but strangers didn't know how to respond, and it could have been interpreted as a fetish or as lewd or threatening or dangerous. Yeah. So it's important to help the child understand, but make sure it's at their developmental level. And higher functioning kids can be given a list of expected behaviors and social situations and discuss how the other people might feel in that situation. But for kids with limited understanding, you have to state the rules in a more straightforward way, emphasizing what they should do instead of what they shouldn't do. Yeah. And use visual supports and help them develop an, a sense of appropriate behaviors in social situations and inhibit impulsive behavior, even if it is related to their interests, you know, if it's going to get them into trouble. I have to say, when I did my internship at a middle school and another girl in our grad school class was at the same placement, we had a student who loved smelling armpits and like the elbow crease and he would get in oh. he he would sneak up on you when you least expect it and just get that nose right in your armpit it was wild <laughs> the most common complaint he hears dr barry hears from parents is that their child talks incessantly about their interests and even if the parent is understanding it does start to wear on them a little kind of like your mom and 
When you're good at reading social cues, you can know when it's appropriate to talk about something for a long time, like when your conversation partner shares your interests. You can use Dr. Barry's time and place strategy to teach kids about this. So teach them that sometimes people want to hear about your interest and other times they're less interested. There's nothing wrong with your interest in trains, but it's not appropriate to talk about it during math or your dentist appointment and maybe even set a time that they can talk about it. Like, first, we're going to talk about this, but then at one o'clock, you can tell us about the train schedule and help the child develop social understanding. So make a list of times and places when it's okay to talk about interests and when it might not be. When parents are at their wits end and just want the child to stop talking about the same thing all the time, the problem is that they're focusing on the behavior without considering the motivation. So are there sometimes that the child focuses on the topic more than others? Are there patterns? Is the child feeling stress? What can you do to alleviate that stress? And is talking about the topic helping to calm him down? Remember that when a child opens with a topic, it's probably because it's a comfortable place for him to start because conversations can provoke anxiety and confusion when you can't predict what other people will say and talking about your own interests might be a way to create more predictability. So we shouldn't reprimand this behavior. We should provide opportunities to practice conversational skills or role play everyday interactions. And then he talks about building on strengths and has a section where he just tells the stories of enthusiasms that turned into lifelong passions and careers with musicians and artists. He ends the chapter with the story of Stanford James, who I love. I've read this Chicago Tribune article, The Man with the Map in His Head. Did you read the article before you read this book? You already knew about him or did you read it because of this story? I can't remember if I read it when I read uniquely human the Mm. first time or if I had just happened to read it I know I've read it yeah I've read the whole article before I might have looked it up the last time I read this okay he loved trains so much he memorized all the routes and his single mom fought for him his whole life and encouraged his interests and then in his early 20s he got a job with Chicago's regional transit authority helping customers find routes and schedules that met their needs and I I, I noted I would need that. I'm lost in anywhere with public transit. I'm like, what do we do? How do we how do we get there? Yeah. Um, and he was named employee of the year. Yes. And they just loved that he showed up even in bad weather and was always polite to customers. And he says, after he helps a customer, I congratulate myself in my imagination saying, Stanford, you are the best man <laughs> who can do everything. <laughs> just like, I love my eyes. Gearing up. Oh I love God, that. So sweet. I just love that. Like, <laughs> yeah, because he is. He's the best at his job. He knows it, you know? And gave him so much confidence. Yeah. Oh, Stanford. Fabulous. So I encourage anybody listening to read that article. It is so sweet and just so inspirational, you know? Love it. Enthusiasms. They can really turn into careers, lifelong passions. They can. All right. That's it for chapters two and three. Next week, we'll be covering chapter four, which is about trust, fear, and control. We'll see you then. Bye, Adrian. Bye, Laura. At the SLP Book Club, our mission is to learn, grow, and connect with other SLPs and educators. If you love what we're doing, the best way to support the podcast is to leave a rating and review wherever you listen. This helps other SLPs find the show so our community can grow even stronger. We appreciate you so much and hope you keep listening and reading along with us.